let's talk about our sponsor, PetrolBox. PetrolBox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. May that be you or a car guy, car girl in your life. Makes a great gift, as I always say. Um, each and every month, they carefully select items from the industry, be it uh, garage gear, tools, apparel. Usually you always get a t-shirt. You always get some really cool, unique enamel pins. Um, and then detailing supplies almost every month. You get detailing supplies along with a tool that goes with the detailing supplies in addition to some other uh, either gadget or like innovation in uh, in the garage or in the uh, automotive industry, I guess, is the best way to say it. So really cool. Every single month is unique. It's an awesome. If you've ever done any sort of subscription service, this is, I think, one of the most fun for um, myself. And I think a lot of our listeners who are definitely into cars and automotive culture. So check those guys out at mypetrolbox.com. Uh, subscriptions start as low as nineteen ninety five a month. Um, you can also get the Petrobox Premium which is even more gear for $39.95 a month. And uh, if you are going to do that, please use the code OVERCREST because that'll get you $6 off your order. All right, that's mypetrolbox.com. Mr. Thomas Walk, it's really amazing to have you here. And in a high frame rate, this is like take three of, of trying to get you to sound. Seems like it's working really well. It's my pleasure to have you here. I'm super excited to talk to you, and it's been a long time coming. It's good to have a catalyst to finally chat. Absolutely, dude. I am thrilled to be on my very first podcast, and uh, yeah, super excited to be talking. So I'm super interested in this book that you guys came out with. And I want, I want to talk about a lot of different things with you, but I'm, I'm as somebody who has dealt with the Porsche archive, like I've dealt with the Porsche archive before I've had, I've had them on the phone. I've had to email them. It is this, it is this enigma, this bunkerized place that has gotten harder and harder and harder to talk to, harder to get uh, to deal with. And I know they have like an amazing, incredible, I mean, you call the guy up and you'd be like, hey, man, I need a photo of, for example, this is a project I, I had really worked on. I need a photo of the Hawaiian Tropic 935 from Le Mans in, I don't remember what year it was, the Paul Newman car. I'm, I'm, I'm missing some photos. I'd love to see it in the Apple livery and do different things. And the guy's like, yeah, I'll get back to you. And then it's like two weeks later, the guy's like, yeah, I found like these photos or whatever. And do you have more? And they're just so busy over there. I think they have a lot to go through. I'm really excited to see your insight about what that place was like. Um, how did you start this journey towards this book? Where did it begin? Um, Artifacts originally began as sort of a, it was born out of pure sort of like curiosity. Um, I wasn't, this was back in 2021 and I was scrolling Instagram as, um, as you do. And I stumbled across an Instagram story of a journalist I follow who was in the archives and he posted a bunch of photos of it. And up to that point, I never really knew what the archives looked like. I knew that they existed, but I never really knew what they really looked like or what was in there. And I, out of those, out of those, few snapshots that I that I got to see on Instagram I just I began sort of like obsessed I was like wow like 
I would love to really know more. And it was really, at that point, I, I wasn't thinking, you know, taking photos, making a book. I was just really, really sort of curious. Um, and back in 2021, of course, was, you know, COVID times and, you know, we were spending a lot of time at home. And I kind of sat with this idea of curiosity for a bit. And then came the idea of like, it would be amazing to go in there and, and to take portraits of some of these items and to try to capture them at a really intimate level. And to also portrait Why? Them Why did you want to do that? Why was that important to you? What was it about that that kind of made you go, I, I need to get in there, I need to do it? <laughs> well, again, it was just um, curiosity. I really just was okay. curious about, you know, you know, what was in there, what were they keeping in there? And, you know, um, and I'm a big fan of like textures. So, so you didn't know the scope of everything that was there, right? No, Ahead of time, you no, didn't know no. the scope. You didn't know how deep it was and where the rabbit hole went. You just, you're standing no. above the rabbit hole going, what's in that dark place? Exactly. I, I, I caught a glimpse and I was like, okay, I, you know, and then I kind of sat on the idea for a bit. Um, and then we started talking amongst ourselves at ERG Media about, you know, what would a photographic project with the archives look like? And there was no real, you know, idea to make it a book or anything, but we, we really felt like it hasn't been done before. Like the archives has not been documented that way before. Um, so we started putting together little decks and, you know, started to toy around with the idea. And then eventually we were like, well, let's just pitch it. Let's see what can come of this. Like, let's see if we can talk to the right folks. And, um, you know, next thing you know, right. we're, um, we're talking to, uh, to Frank. What, and so what, up until this point, what were you using the Porsche archives for? Like, what was, what was your interaction with them? Like nil, I, I had no idea who ran the archives. I had no <laughs> idea what they did. I just, like I said, I, I, I had a very small idea of what they were responsible for. Um, and I knew to a small degree that they existed, but I, again, it was just pure, um, innocent like curiosity I, I just really was curious to see what we could do if we got in there and so we put together this deck this big elaborate deck on you know what would we do if we had access to photograph the items in the archives um and over the course of a year we sort of like you know um, started talking to the right folks and um i'm not sure if you remember but 2021 like i we couldn't i couldn't leave i could not get out of australia so it was, it was not even a question. Again, there were a lot of restrictions with COVID. And, you know, so this was, this was a, this was a concept that we weren't too sure if we would ever be able to execute. We were just kind of like, you know, playing around with this idea and exploring it. Um, and eventually we got talking to the right folks, which happened to be Frank and Jörg, who are responsible for the archives. And um, yeah, we, we just, we got talking and they, they right away sensed that we were enthusiasts like they were and that we, you know, we were on the right page with what we wanted to do. And, um, yeah, we, we, we produced it over the course of, you know, six months. And as soon as, as soon as I was able to, I, I got on the plane to Germany and, and yeah, went for it. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Okay. So what is this, where is this place? Um, what do they keep there? And right. what was it like when you got there? So you can imagine that it was almost a religious experience when I got there. It was almost like, you know, like going to the uh, 16th chapel. It was, uh, it was quite, 
it was so surreal. But the bulk of the archives, so the way that I like to explain the archives to, to folks who ask me, you know, what it was like there, is that you've got two main rooms uh, right underneath the Porsche Museum. And these are air-controlled um, rooms with, you know, um, airtight doors and um, argon gas vents and you know this so that's kind of where they keep the bulk of it uh, but the truth is that the archives in reality is spread out all of his different housing um, throughout like different buildings the archives didn't really start as far as I know until the the late 80s early 90s so you can imagine they had quite a lot of catching up to do up to that point and they were spread out kind of everywhere so it is the full-time job of a handful of employees who are dedicated to the cause of, you know, preserving the history of Porsche to, you know, sort through all this stuff that they've accumulated across like, like over a number of years and to put them in the right place and to digitize them. And so, yeah, it is quite overwhelming. When I first got there, I thought... How I many people are doing this? I want to say there's a solid team of about 20 people. I... Maybe, again, don't quote me on this. I, I want to say this is what I remember. I think it's about, you know, 15 to 20 people who are solely dedicated to running the archives. And, you know, that that's pretty much, you know, for everything from uh, doing research uh, services for, for guys like you who, who want to find photos of cars and um, to guys who are, yep. you know, yep. like finding um, like folders covered in dust and need to put them in the right place. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a skeleton crew as far as, you know, um, teams within Porsche are concerned. It's kind of like a very small dedicated group of people who run the archives. Um, and when I first got there, I thought, I, I knew that they were, you know, after talking to, um, to Frank and to Jörg for a number of months, I knew about the two main rooms and I knew that that's, you know, that's going to be where the bulk of what we were going to shoot was going to live. Um, but then, as I quickly discovered, there's a lot more to it, and it's it's quite overwhelming, as you can imagine. It's you you really you think you know what you're in for, and then you walk into a room, and it is just shells and bon like upon shells upon shells of stuff that is you know it's just incredible, and you it's it's quite emotional as a as a fan of the brand. You feel like you like you've kind of like stumble onto a treasure trove and that like that no one's looked at before um and yeah it, well it's... much of it nobody has looked at before the the amount of stuff that they have i am i'm just imagining i'm imagining you have you, you've seen have you seen the matrix the movie right. yeah yeah sure you know yeah. where neo goes i need guns lots and lots, lots of, of guns. guns and then the, yeah. the whole the, like the thing goes and there's like guns flying by that's what i'm imagining it was like you're walking in there and there's just the the absolute monumental um like how did you even yeah I mean, when I mean, you got like, there you just must have been just okay where do i even where do i even start absolutely and we tried to do that over the phone and i you know i could see in their eyes that they were like <laughs> we can try <laughs> but you you'll you'll never know until you get here like you, this is this is how you have to do it like you have to come here and you have to like pick things for yourself because you could, you know, we were trying to describe the things that we wanted access to and to photograph. And of course we wanted to also photograph the items with, you know, good backstories, uh, 
we also wanted to photograph stuff that people may not have seen before. Um, and so we tried to do that over the phone over a few months. And the conclusion was, yeah, you better come here and you, better, <laughs> you just have a look and you, and you just make that decision for yourself. And, you know, sure enough, we got there and it, it took us, I think on the schedule, we had like three days to go through like all the rooms that we had access to and okay so you probably had like okay so you guys discussed over the phone you're like yeah we're gonna look at this we're gonna look at that but there must right. have been some discovery too like you oh, open yeah. up a drawer and you're like oh my god what was the biggest uh what were some of those moments like where you discovered something talk about discovery at this place uh look having never been face to face with any of the things that i had shot it was it was all it, the whole thing was a discovery um what i didn't expect was you know the initial concept behind the book or behind what you know it was before until it became a book was that we were just going to photograph um the items it was just going to be about the items and then after we did our three-day recce of the archives it became really obvious to me that like the rooms themselves had a had a real presence and they, when you walked in there you really felt as if you were in some sort of church and you know there was really this incredible feeling that we felt when we were in those rooms looking for the stuff that we photographed and so in a very late stage of the project you know we decided hey we better try to capture these rooms and try to represent them and try to capture them in a way that makes people feel the way we felt when we were in there so you know there were a lot of so we i think we had like one day where we ran around with tripods and cameras, try to just capture details of, of these rooms and to include them inside the book. Um, Do you think the rooms were special because of the, just the way that, of the people that were working there kind of curated the space on purpose or accidentally, or how do these spaces become special? Like these with very, nothing in them, are they special spaces? No, probably not. I mean, you walk into um, storage room one um, in the Porsche Museum, and there's a middle shelf that splits the room into two and there are just scale models along that entire shelf and you just you feel like you're in the presence of history you know it just it, it's a very personal experience like as as a porsche fan you know that you're at the mecca like this is this is where the whole his like this is the memory bank of the brand this is where it all is so there's an incredible presence in these rooms that's um, almost sort of haunting try not to get through like almost like dramatic but yeah you, you're walking around well, think like, about it in terms like like imagine you're not a porsche fan right imagine yeah. that you're just a guy you right. know it's you're just a guy you're a photographer you're thomas walk that doesn't own a porsche you're, maybe you're a fan of uh maybe you like british cars by some mistake right. in your in your life you, you're a big british car fan by some horrible thing that happened to you as a child and you walk into this place, not even as a Porsche fan, what makes this, what makes these rooms special? What is it about these rooms that, that would impress upon even somebody that doesn't care about Porsche that you're somewhere special? I mean, if I had to pick the one thing, I would say that it, it doesn't take long for you to realize how much history is kept there. So, you know, you don't have to be a fan of, of like Leonardo da Vinci to go to a museum where his stuff is kept and be blown away. Just the amount of engineering mm -hmm. 
that was that is represented in these rooms like the amount of research the amount of you know there's a lot of history in those rooms like and i think that whether or not you're a car fan or a porsche fan that is something to be to be pretty impressed by um i mean they yeah i think even not even caring about cars right it's it's still special yeah, and you know these guys—they don't like these rooms are very functional. So you asked before if they were curated in a way to impress. I would say that they're one hundred percent not. Uh, they're curated in a way that it makes it easy for them to find things. Um, but you know, all these shelves—the way that they work—is that there's like this big sort of like crank that you like spin, and then the shelves like you know they they sort of split open. I'm not I'm not sure if you've seen those. They're quite common in most archives. Um, yeah, yeah, I've seen those, like courthouses and right, and, exactly. I've so, seen them on TV shows where they have all the the crime stuff and all the yeah, all yeah, the evidence much. and everything are shoved in boxes in these things. Yeah, exactly. So you walk into these rooms and they're all closed, and you know you see there's there's that big middle shelf of all the like um, of all the models, and then they start cranking them open one by one, and it opens and you've got like race helmets and like scale models of the 962 with the Ruffman's livery. And it is a shock to the system. It's you're just like, especially when you're there to, you know, cherry pick a few things and you're just like, it's really hard to like <laughs> get a grip. What was, it, like, what was your favorite thing that you discovered that maybe you didn't even know it was there, but you, you turn the little knob, it opens the wall and you're like, Oh my God, look at that. What was that? You know, if you had to pick one thing that was your favorite discovery, what was it? I don't want to spoil it because I do want people to read it in the book, but there is a thing in there that they pulled out out of nowhere because it wasn't placed in an obvious, you know, they, they had to open up a few folders to get to it. But there was a thing in there called a beer contract, uh, which was a contract between um, the uh, Dr. Porsche and his engineers at the time about exceeding rev limits. And if you were to exceed those rev limits, you owe X amount of beers. The full story is in the book, but the, it, it looks so official and, you know, German, you know, but without knowing what it said. And then they, they told me what it said. And it's like them just having fun. And it's, that was really cool. Um, <laughs> there was also, um, I want to say one of my favorite discoveries would have to be, um, Right towards the end, I think second, the second last day that we were there, we were kind of running ahead of schedule and we had shot most of the things that were on, on our list. And I went to the guys in the archives and I went, hey, look, we're pretty much almost done. We've got one more day where we can shoot stuff. Is there anything else? And at this point, I think surely there isn't. Like, I've, surely I've, <laughs> I've seen it all. And, you know, they were kind of like scratching their chin, being like, yeah, actually, there's one more room. I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Is it it like, uh, are they like sliding? Is it like a bookshelf on wheels that they're like, and then there's like a secret door and there's like cobwebs all over it? And it was a little bit like that. Um, And I would say that it, you know, for the guys who work in the archives, like what we consider special and what they consider special are on two different like levels, you know, like they live with this stuff every day. So it, it's, yeah. it's very different for them to say, oh yeah, like this film reel from Lamar, like, yeah, whatever, I've seen it a hundred times. I'm, I'm glad that you like it. 
Um, but it's it's so it was, you know, when we got to that second last day and I asked them this, um, they were like, well, actually, across the road, there's an old building and we keep some stuff in there. And I'm like, okay, let's go check it out. And, <laughs> and you know, I've, I've got one more day. I've, you know, so, and, you know, we would shoot about eight hours a day. So depending on what we were find, we're about to find. This was like four o'clock in the afternoon. And depending on what we're about to find, we would have eight hours the next day to shoot it. And, you know, it took me two weeks to get through the bulk of you know, the stuff that we already shot. And so he's like, okay, all right, um, come across the road. And took me inside this, this old building that used to be an old gymnasium for, for Porsche employees. He flicks on a light switch and like right next to me is like a pile of Rothman's racing suits from the eighties and just like a sea of shells. And I'm just thinking, holy shit, <laughs> like what now? Like, what are we going to find here? And we, and that, I think some of the most significant pieces that we were able to show in the book um, came from that one room. Um, what we found there were some of Porsche's very first experiments with like 3D printing. So um, like the V10 engine that's in the Carrera GT, they, they 3D printed that about this big. And that was them, you know, messing around with 3D printing in the 90s. And it's kept there in this little cardboard box. Yeah. Yeah. And we're like, holy crap, like that is so amazing. Like not even historically speaking, but as a little piece of art, like that is just a 3D printed orange version of the Carrera GT um, engine. Like, amazing. We found, what else have we found? We found the the original clock that was used um, um, on the Work One factory line. So like, that was sitting there under a tarp, just, you know, not being neglected, but you know. What was, was built just, on that assembly line? Oh, I mean, that would probably be in the early 911 days or, you know, it was, so, you know, work one, you know, I'm not sure, I don't think they, they would have built early 356s there, you know, when they migrated from, um, mm -hmm. um, from Austria um, to back to um, like Stuttgart. So, yeah, look, so we found that there and like we found, you know, these giant sketches. You can understand why that guy would be like, why do you want to take pictures of a clock? Like, what, like, what are you doing? Right. Like, why is this clock matter? You know? <laughs> I mean, if you if you if your every day is to be around these objects, then yeah, for sure, that is one hundred percent how you're going to react to that. Be like, oh yeah, that's the old, that's the old factory clock. Like, sure, have at it. Um, but to me, that was like, holy shit, like this is so incredible. And there's pictures out there where you can see that clock. Like, how amazing! Like that is. It's also amazing that they still have it. You know, and it should. It should be part of the museum. Like, it's just incredible. Well, somebody saw the significance of it, right? Like, there's probably a dude, they're, like, redoing the factory, and they're, like, pulling the clock down, and there's some dude named Franz being like, yeah, why don't we just save that clock over there? We got to put the clock, box it up, put it in the gymnasium, and then there's dudes that are like, what do you mean put it in the gymnasium? We love the gymnasium. And he just puts the clock in the gymnasium. You know, right. there's a one guy, like, made it happen, right? I mean, they, it's, uh, I, I got to give it to them. They, they kept a lot of stuff, um, and... They can't make room for everything in those rooms, and they can't make room for everything in those um, um, in the museum. So, yeah, I would say finding that room on the second last day that we were shooting was quite, like, almost stressful. 
And I had to like stop myself because I, I, I got a trolley, like a literal trolley. And I was like, yep, take this, take that. And, you know, it's just, I had to stop myself. I was like, I only got eight hours tomorrow. Okay, so speaking of this trolley, I, I want to get into like maybe your process with shooting. So are you, tell me how you went about shooting some of these things and what the process was like. So we shot everything on site in the museum inside um, where they keep all their books pretty much. Um, and that decision was based on the fact that we didn't want to make any of these things travel too far. Um, so the original idea was that we were going to hire out a studio uh, close by. Closest studio that we could find was a good 30 minutes away. And, you know, that just seemed like it was going to make things a bit clunky. Um, and so we decided to build a studio right there in the archives. Um, it was pretty There's no cool. way those dudes would have let you take that stuff out and take it to a studio somewhere. Right. No I mean, way. No chance. Come on, They, they were definitely open to really? it. Really? Yeah, they were open to it, but it would definitely have presented. Really? Wow. I mean, you know, they would have presented a logistical, you know, <laughs> it would have just been like a lot harder. Um, so we built a studio right there yeah. um, where they keep all their books. Um, we made a big space for it. It was pretty not the flashes of like setups but it worked really well um and you know we had just enough room for like four lights um a two meter backdrop and that was it and then we had a, a, like a little nook for for my assistant a computer and that was it and so the process was did you have kind of a, a like a like a, any rules that you set up for yourself in terms of like a creative director position was there like i don't even know the term for it but kind of like a set of guide like or like a, i guess it'd be like a brand guide almost when you're well, looking at all the work that you're doing and you're setting all these things up how did you make sure that everything stayed consistent and you were able to put it together in a package because you're shooting like a million different types of things it's not like right. you're doing a wheel catalog or just taking pictures of cars there's such a huge variety of what you're doing how did you make it all work and visually tell a story that that makes sense so the the concept that we fleshed out over the course of you know several months um, was that we wanted to put a big emphasis on the textures of these things because the idea was that we were going to be taking people who had never heard of the archives or been to the archives in there and we also wanted people to get a sense of the textures involved in these things so you know um, photographing the right light all of these items are so rich in uh, textures you know some of these things like we kept the dust on them like we really wanted to try to to make people feel like they were holding it in their hands um so that was a sort of so that 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 was an idea that the whole thing revolved around so you know we we sort of went okay we're going to shoot we're going to try like three or four different setups on an item and then we're going to come in close and that was kind of going to be it you know and then we were just kind of keep rotating um, items around and you know where we saw it fit we would capture the like we would capture the uh, um, like, you know um, the patina or the um, or the textures and then we would sort of move on to the next thing um, where it sort of went and progress was I think one of the, one of the biggest pivotal points in the photography's hot, um, direction was to shoot things on black so at the very last minute I think like three, like three days before we went there, I added a black backdrop to the mix because I, I kind of had this idea of like, you know, what if we're able to shoot things as if you're discovering them with a torchlight? So in the book, you'll see that there's, um, 
you'll see there's like a 917 fan like floating in black and it almost looks like you've spotted it with a torchlight and kind of adds to that sense of discovery um so yeah we had to come up with a bit of a schedule on how to shoot things i think the schedule was that we would shoot 10 to 12 items a day and we had about 20 minutes with each items so um that so we kept to that to that really strict um schedule but you know we also gave ourselves plenty of wiggle room to mess around with lighting so like you know you'll see it in um inside the book um that little 3d um scale model of the um of uh the carrera gt um motor that's made of resin and you know we 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 took our time to figure out like how how can we show what this thing is made out of without you know and we we try to play around with the lighting and i think the shot the shot that we ended up picking is a shot where the light is directly behind uh, the motor like shining through and so we gave ourselves plenty of wiggle room to play around with the lights play around with you know how do we show these things because um as as um as uh, someone who's put books before i know that if you see too much of the same thing it's going to feel repetitive and dull so we really try to make sure that every 10 pages or so you, you really got to see something in a different light but the whole thing revolved around being able to capture yeah that's that's incredibly difficult to kind of keep like a similar style and not have it be redundant and repetitive you know yeah, I, yeah. I love what you're saying about the the textures and making it what you basically what you did is you made it about the reader right you right. made it about the reader you made it about the viewer and i think that's i mean that's a huge challenge you know rather than making it about you guys experiencing what you were able to experience and i love talking about your experience here but as the book making it about the person viewing it that's an incredible that's an incredible task and and very difficult what do you think was the biggest challenge of everything what was the hardest part and the thing you're most proud to have overcome i mean shooting it was in itself quite difficult and thankfully i had help when i was there uh you know big um a huge sort of shout out to to the guys who helped nat uh and chris and and all those guys uh, but i think the biggest challenge would have to be to to come home and to recalibrate and then to look at i think we walked away with like twelve thousand images or something like that and then to go okay like now this needs to be a single body of work that you know takes people into the archives um so that is something that i feel we overcame pretty pretty well um i don't know there were a lot of challenges with this book um none of it was so bad that it, it almost stopped it but i would say that it it's there were a lot of challenges that had to be sort of overcome especially in a creative sense um, but i think to come home of all these images and then to try to make them all feel the same the editing process in itself was took a long time um and then to edit everything so what you're it. saying is you didn't just grab the first photo edit it select all of the photos and just hit no. sync right you had to it's a I little wish. more complicated no, than that this was definitely one of the, you know, this was definitely one of the most complicated editing jobs that I've ever, you know, that I've ever done. Um, especially when you're trying to, you know, keep some sort of consistency across, you know, all these pictures. It's, it's definitely quite tricky. So I would say if I had to cherry pick one challenging challenge out of the whole thing, I would say to come home with that many pictures and then to be like, okay, we're going to scrap that one and keep this one and, you know, 
and that's that's pretty tough because there's a, there's there's stuff that obviously didn't make the cut, uh, and that's 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 always a tough call to make when you're you're doing the editing process. Did you um, do you think you shot too much? Did you shoot no, think, too much out of like worry when you were there? No, not at all. Um, if if anything, I I I almost wish that I shot more. I was I almost wish that I had more time. But the body of work that we came away with, I think, is 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 pretty spot on. I think for a for a sort of general introduction to the archives and what's in there, you you're really gonna get the best stuff, and you're gonna get the stuff that most people don't get to see. If if you're a journalist and you go to these guys at the Porsche Museum and you you're privileged enough to have a tour of the archives, I can guarantee you that there's stuff in this book you're not gonna get to see in the main routes of the archives. So we were extremely privileged with the access that we got given. And, you know, the guys in the archives sensed that, you know, they, they really appreciated what we wanted to do. Um, and, uh, you know, they they really did not um, hold back. They, they were just like, yep, you know, whatever you guys need, you know, you can shoot it. Um, it was just kind of getting access to the right Yeah, that's style. awesome to have that kind of backing and help from, from those dudes. What do you think was your favorite object? Whether it's a paper, whether it's a, a helmet, or a, maybe it was, you know, somebody's race suit, Derek Bell's oh. Rothman suit just laying on the floor. Like, what, what is it like? What did you find? And what would you have, I guess, look at it this way. What would you have snuck into your carry-on luggage on your way home if you could have taken it home with you? Oh, good question. I'd say the 917 race fan, uh, especially because that was a race to use fan. So there's a picture in there of a 917 fan that was, you know, used like during Le Mans and it failed and it, they kept it for like research. Um, and historically, it doesn't have like, it didn't win any races. Or it's not like, you know, it wasn't, it, it, it's not that significant. But like men is a little cool. Like it looks freaking awesome. When you hold one, like when you hold one, and you're like, <laughs> it's like I was actually starstruck. Like, and I've seen nine seventeen fans in nine seventeens, but I don't know. There's something about holding one by itself. That's like wow. That's really really cool. That is just like you know, it's just fiberglass. It's just amazing. It's so super cool. So, but I don't know. Look, I, why do I you have... think that the uh, why does this why does this matter? Like, why is this important? Like, why why is what you did matter? Why does the archives matter? Um, I don't want to make it about why does Porsche matter, but I'm just wondering why this type of process is important to you. I think the thing that really humbled me um, in the archives was really realizing that um, there's a real sort of like human story behind Porsche and that it was, you know, created by people who really believed in it and that you know, it really all began out of just that that pure drive to it's it's that is it was almost a pure drive to just make things better at a time where things were hard to make better. You know, in terms of like you know talking about cars, um, and you and I know this like owning you know all Porsches like these cars have no right being that good and being that old. Like you know, so it's I mean mine's pretty good and yours is quite troublesome from what i see but um you know <laughs> um, hey i've got there's the, the troublesome part is not a porsche part on my car it's yeah, right. uh, it's an aftermarket carburetor that 
someone tried to make better. So to be fair, it's it's not Porsche's fault, I guess. No, but I I think being there, like you really when you open up all the old notebooks from the engineers, and you really get a sense that you know this is a human story, and that you know that's really important to to sort of cherish and to and to almost preserve because I feel like you know this is the kind of stuff that we're drift, that we're drifting further and further away from as a society and that's to really is um, to come together for a single cause and, and to and to really make the best of it and I think that's really essentially what Porsche was about in those early days they all believed in something and they all it was all just done by by pen and paper and it was all done out of pure grit and I think there's an amazing story there that needs to be preserved and needs to be told so I think that's what's really important about it and it's it's something that I, I think we captured um, in this book you know, you really look at so many, like even some of these early, um, like scale models of prototypes, and you know, it's all, it's all sanded by hand. It's all just, you know, like someone sat there and sanded this thing until it was done, until it was finished, and that is something that's becoming more and more rare these days. You're like, you know, everything, you know, nowadays you want to make a scale model of something that big, you you go and get it three D printed, and you get it, you know, like. There is nobody who's going to sit there and send this thing by hand. So you really, the the, the beginning of, of Porsche was really a, a done out of pure grit, done out of, from people who really believed in it. And I, I think that's you know there's something really like romantic about that. Almost. Yeah, I think that that mentality and that uh, that enigmatic nature of where Porsche was and where they came from is kind of why it's loved today. I think it's right. it's a very special circumstance, and there's a lot of manufacturers that have their own special circumstances too. Yeah. I, um, mean, I think Porsche is is special in that way. Porsche is not alone in that department. Like there's older brands that were around, um, and that there's plenty yeah. of brands out there that are older than um, than Porsche. Um, but I think in um, general, it's important to preserve and to tell the stories of you know people who who really sat there and designed something out of just um, like sketching it on paper. I think that's that's something quite remarkable about that. I mean, to, to in that see... in that vein, what other arc? If you could visit another archive, what what other manufacturer would you want to see the archive for? I've got mine in my mind. I know where I would go immediately. Okay, and it might be a little where... uncommon, but where would you go? Like, what what's yours? What's your archive of choice after this? Well, funnily enough, when I was in when I was in Germany in uh, Stuttgart doing this project, I visited the Mercedes Museum, which is a must for any automotive fan. Um, even if you don't like cars, I think it's an incredible, like the building itself is quite, it's quite amazing. And that, you know, Mercedes-Benz pretty much invented the car. So I would say that that would be, that right. would be right there on my list. That would, that would be where I would go next. And that would be, I mean. I'm all over Alfa Romeo, man. Like yeah, the Alfa early Romeo days of Alfa Romeo. Ooh. Yes, absolutely. All that racing back then, you know, way before Ferrari. Ooh, that's where I, I think that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, absolutely. That all, all, all the Pirelli um, archives. Um, from what I actually know, the Pirelli archives are meant to be quite amazing. So, I would put Mercedes and Pirelli right up there in terms of who, who I want to go to next. But you know, my heart lies with Porsche. I'm a, I'm a Porsche guy at heart, so <laughs> I, I would happily okay, go. Okay, so back. speaking of like a, being a Porsche guy. Um, and I'm sorry, we have a little bit of a delay. If it sounds like I'm talking over you, it's not on purpose, no, I promise. Where did your love for Porsche come from? Was it like, was it your father? Like, where does, where does this start for you? Like getting your first Porsche and, and your dad and everything? 
So this is my old man. Oh, he's showing us a photo here. When he was around 27. Uh, and my old man is the reason why I got into Porsches in the first place. My, my dad was a Porsche trained mechanic who ran his own work and who ran his own workshop. Um, when I was a kid, those cars were always around, um, to the point where I didn't think they were special. I just was like, yeah, it's just, you know, the cars that dad just works on. Um, then I, you know, then I grew up a little bit and realized, well, these are pretty awesome cars. Um, and but I would say that, like right there, this guy right here is the is is really the guy who, who sort of you know planted the seed, and um, you know that's that's pretty much it. So yeah, um, and a lot of people who I deeply respect and admire, you know, love the brand. So there's a there's a there's a connection there. Um, but it's just it's just one of those things, you know, you uh, you pick your poison. And it just feels right, and I think that's just what it is with Porsche. Like for me, it's when I got into cars, I, I really was trying to like cherry pick and really kind of pick what it is that I wanted to be into. Like um, I was never a JDM guy, um, but I always did like classic cars, and you know, it just kind of came full circle when I realized that I like Porsches. And I was like, hang on, my dad was like, is oh, a Porsche guy, like who worked on Porsches, and I was like, yeah, it all makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's that's. So how did the thing with uh, being a creative director start out? I know that you worked with uh, Nevin, a good friend of both of ours, at right. Deus. Is that where it started, or where did this you know creative director life begin, and and how? Well, I I'm much more of a photographer than a creative director, but I do creative do creative direction. On Not anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, look I, at this book that you've created and what you've done with Type Seven. I I'm I wouldn't. I mean. You've done an incredible job. I'm just trying to find Thank out where it, where it began. Thank you. Well, I can't take all the credit for Type 7. There's an incredible, dedicated team behind the whole thing. Uh, Nat Twist, uh, Ted, sure. um, you know, all those guys, you know, they all help to, to make what it is. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say it just kind of came over a course of, you know, like with creative direction, it really comes down to being well calibrated to things that you think are good and then finding how to put a voice to that. So, um, you know, I've, I've spent most of my life, fortunate enough, or most of my creative life, sorry, most of my life, most of my creative life working alongside people who have amazing creative voices and I've, I've learned to sort of like pick up on, you know, what makes those voices good. Um, and yeah, I think it's just what it comes down to is really having a good antenna for, you know, what, you know, what that stuff is and, you know, you know, what makes you tick and you know how to how to put a voice to that um and also how to 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 find the right people to work with that are going to help you bring those ideas to life and that is so much of what what's happened with this uh, with this book is uh it wasn't just me saying hey i the archives sound really cool i want to go in there really it 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 came to be because you know there was the right team of people working behind this thing that helped to to make it what it is so Whilst I may have been, you know, heavily involved in, in, in sort of like steering the ship, I, it, it really comes down to, um, to having the right crew. And uh, that's, that's, much, that's exactly what's happened with this book here. That's a perfect example of that. So how did you find your, uh, your place in this world? Like, how did it start? What was, what, what was your first paid gig when you're like, wow, this actually, I could be a photographer. What, what, how did this 
I have no idea what my first paid gig was. I don't think I, <laughs> I have no idea. But um, the, he's selling lemonade on on the yeah, side of the outback. My first job was not photography, that's for sure. Um, but um, the if I had to really trace it back, I would say that. Um, so my mother was a um, used to write reviews for films, and so she was a movie critic, um, essentially. And which meant that um, her little home office was just flooded with um, with press releases from movies and advanced copies of movies that were coming out. And, you know, it was just kind of always, at an early age, I became very well aware of, you know, like framing and, you know, like, you know, like... Um, having things be in a, in a sort of visual format. Did you watch movies with her? Did you did you oh, yeah. screen stuff with her? And did she talk to you about you know what was yeah. going on? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, this movie's many. trash. I don't like the like. How did that work? No, I mean my mom was. I mean you, I've got to give a I've got to give a credit because she would show me things that I don't think kids my age were, should have been watching. I mean I I remember watching Jackie Brown with my mom. When I was like. I was still in primary school, no doubt. She was like, I've got to review this film. I've got an advanced copy here. Do you want to sit down? I, I would, you know, I would watch Goodfellas and Jackie Brown. And so I had a pretty good yes. cinematic upbringing. Um, and that instilled in me um, a very visual sense for things. Um, and I carried that through to photography. I, uh, I, I thought that maybe I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I, you know, I kind of had access to a photo, to you know, a photographic camera, and to me, framing things, like whether it was still or motion, it was all the same. And I just took, I just thought it was really, really fun. So that would be where it all began. Really, it was really just having um, that ability to capture the world around me um, in a way that makes sense to me, and and just playing around, and you know, it's it was just kind of like a love affair that I had with photography at a very early age that, that sort of guided me to, you know, where I am right now. And, um, yeah. I, what I do you say, think makes, uh, made you good back then? Like, why did someone take notice of Thomas Walk? What was it about you? I, don't I know, know it's hard to talk about yourself sometimes. It's but, very, very uh, hard. Like, what is it about like your work that you think people were attracted to? You know, you ended up at Deus at a time I'm imagining, you know, if you were there when Nevin was there, right. it was kind of a fledgling thing, right? Deus wasn't what it is today. It was, it was just this grassroots, you know, thing where Deus would support other places, support other events, and it was a lot different than it is. But how did you end up on that team? Because that's a very, if I think of the people that were there, they're all very good. They're all very talented. What was it about Thomas Walk that put you in the pool with those, with those people? No idea. But <laughs> so for the record, um, Nevin worked in the U.S. and I worked in Sydney, which is where Deus is based. Uh, so we well, I just were... imagine all the stories Nevin told me about Australia. So I assume that you guys yeah, exactly. oh, I mean, when he was we, there. We definitely worked together and crossed paths, and I had the pleasure of you know going over to the states and you know um, spending time with Nevin. Um, but I would say the Deus chapter of my life um, really began out of sheer luck um i was getting into motorcycles at the time and i had a good friend who worked there in the uh, creative team and they were looking for an in-house photographer and um i just happened to be very enthusiastic and looking for a job and <laughs> and it was just seemed like you know it, it was a it was a place that i believed in and i i really wanted to be part of that team 
I later came to realize that, you know, aside from all the cool stuff that Des was doing, it was an incredible creative environment to be a part of. And those were extremely formative years for me. I spent seven years there working alongside some of the most talented and creative people I've been lucky uh, to know, including uh, um, the creative director and co-founder, uh, Kabi Tuckwell, who drew this little guy right here. There's a picture of a 356 um, that's hanging behind me. Um, and yeah, those were extremely formative years. And, you know, I, I learned a lot about who I was. How did it change you? Well, if you look at when you started to when you left, what was what were your biggest takeaways from from that? How did it form you? What did it do? I would say that it really, um, first of all, it definitely changed my perception on photography, and it, if I really got to to stretch my legs creatively on the with um, photography and learning how that how that all sort of you know made sense to me, and you know really helping me find my voice with uh, photography but also I got to really learn a ton of other stuff that you know I probably would never have picked up on uh, if I had stayed a freelance photographer and just you know made money uh, taking photos you know I got to the thing with uh, the thing with working there and like you said it was you know at that point for quite a long time it was a very a grassroots thing is that um, people wore many hats so I was responsible for taking photos of stuff, but every now and again, I would need to chip in and lay out a catalog. So, you know, by doing these things, you learn how to, you know, get com comfortable with um, InDesign and learn to get comfortable with like Illustrator. And you, you, you get to really dip your toes in a lot of disciplines that you, you know, would otherwise never get a chance to, you know, have a reason to. Um, did you have any formal like discipline said, stuff or was it kind of trial by really fire? Creative people was just so helpful in terms of finding my voice and try to figure out what it is that I like about, um, you know, like being creative. Um, I also came to, to realize that. Did you, was there any of this, was any of this stuff that you were learning, like InDesign, Photoshop, Lightroom, cameras? Did you have any formal training or was it None. basically just trial by fire? Like, here, 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 you got to make this catalog. Uh, here's InDesign. Go. Was it, you have any formal was, training at all? No, not, not really. Out of high school, I just was like, I was a flunky in, um, um, in high school. I paid barely any, uh, um, I paid no attention, especially when discovering photography at kind of an early age, around when I was like 13 or 14, I was just like, you know, screw high school and screw, you know, learning stuff. I'm just going to I'm just going to do photography, which is pretty Sounds short, familiar. Which is pretty short-sighted. Um, but then out of high school, I reached I don't out. know what it was about my art teachers and like the at the school, like the photography teacher, the art teacher when I was there. Right. For some reason, they would let me skip all my classes and I would just go to the art room. I would sit there, I would draw, I would That's color, cool. I would develop photos, I'd throw clay on the pottery wheel, I'd grab the airbrush, and I would spend 3-4 hours. I go I go to school in the morning go to my locker, put my shit away, and I wouldn't even show up for first period. I would sit in the art room all the way till lunch, and then maybe I would just leave school. I don't know, the art teachers kind of, they had to have known what I was doing and where I was. Dude, that's amazing. I was also a flunky dude. Like I didn't, like, I barely graduated. It was like a, a D minus, 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 minus. Okay, we'll let this guy through, get his diploma, get him out of here. Right. I barely graduated. I only finished high school because my mom said I had to. She was like, you can do whatever you want in life. Just please have a high school diploma. And I was like, all right, sure. If 
fine. I don't think I've, I don't think I even went to my graduation. That's how much of a pissed off teenager I was. I was like the day that I finished my last exam and it was in the can. I was like, I'm never showing up to school ever again. So, um, <laughs> look, I was just. A Why were you so pissed off? What was going on? I have no idea. It was just a. I listened to a lot of you know a lot of Metallica, a lot of Slayer. Testosterone. You know, yeah, exactly. I was just. A, oh, dude. I was just Thomas. A, yeah. Do you know what my nickname was in high school? No, something to do with music. I'm guessing. My, it was Metallica. Was my actual nickname no way. in high school. I had a different Metallica shirt for every day of the week. I wore a Metallica shirt every single day. I had long <laughs> hair. I play guitar. If I wasn't in the art room, I'd be taking my going to the band room with my buddies and jamming out master puppets in the drum room. Man, that was that, it. That was that's amazing. Man, I was such a fuck up, dude. I was such a fuck up. <laughs> look at you now. <laughs> it all worked out. Um, yeah, I'm still fuck up. Yes. We're all fuck ups in our own ways. Um, but yeah, look, that was just, I don't think there's a, any good reason for being, you know, the way that I was. I think it was just a rebellious streak that I went through. And also, I also felt like I really wanted to pursue creative stuff, which, and, and school just seemed like it was in the way. And I was just like, yeah, it's just, it was just not my thing. Back then, I just wanted to go surf and go skate and take photos with my friends. And, you know, that's exactly what I did when I wasn't at school. And then whenever I did get pulled into school, it felt like I was doing something against my will. So I think that's just what it was. Um, I also feel like it's it's almost a, a prerequisite to, to being a, some sort of... Uh, some sort of creative that's that's how you have to approach school you've got to approach it with with a sense of you know <laughs> you got to be somewhat pissed off at it uh, it kind of fuels the fire um but yeah out of high school yeah we're giving great advice to any kids that are listening yeah, now yeah sorry, just yeah. just stay in the art room fuck don't off just barely graduate you'll be fine don't worry about it it's no problem I so what's so at, you you're basically doing a ton of work with type seven right now and you've done this book, which is beautiful. And we'll, we'll leave a link to, in the description for everybody that's interested in the book to, to check the book out. And I highly encourage it. Um, it, it sounds like a, a work of art. I can't wait for mine to get here. What's next? Like, what, are, what, is, the, what is the trajectory for Type 7? What do you see Type 7 becoming? And, and you know, I've, I've, watched, I've watched Type 7 start. You know, I was very, very interested in where Type 7, when it, when it started and what Ted was doing. Right. And then I, you know, I, as time goes along, I start to hear about you a little bit and what you're doing. And I hear about Nat and what Nat is up to. And I kind of see it all coming together. And yeah. you guys seem to be really producing extremely high quality stuff. And I don't know if that was the original inception was to make the books. I don't know. But where are things going? Where do you want to be? It's a good question. Um, I think where do you, let me say, where do you want type seven to be? I think we wanted to, of course, I think we just want to be, to, to up the stakes in terms of, you know, where we sit in the zeitgeist of the community that we've grown. Um, so I think that's ultimately, we want to try to grow uh, the community. We also want to try to be more present in a physical sense. So making the books that, you know, we've been releasing across, that in, in, in the last four years, I should say, have been very pivotal in making that happen. So it really began as like an Instagram thing, but I think now the next step is to, you know, do more of, it's to really grow uh, the community that, you know, we've, we've helped to nurture. So to, to do lots more um, like physical events, be part of more physical events. Um, we're going to keep bringing out more books. Um, and yeah, that's, I think that's, that's kind of the, the uh, long-term answer is to try to make 
the com- it's to grow the community that we've helped to um, um, help to grow. And uh, it really is an amazing community when you. So really I mean, physical sense, I think instantly of of like a particular rally. I mean, I'd love to have you out. <laughs> well, you've you been know, if you can get here, you can ride with me. Hell yeah! I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm only in Australia. It's only like a 20 hour flight away, so no problem. <laughs> but I would love to. We've got, I've got routes in. So I, I, I have this dream of driving around Australia and through the middle. My wife says I'm not allowed to drive through the middle. She's the middle. absolutely positive that I'm going to die if I drive through the middle of Australia. I'm going to get yep. murdered and chopped up into little pieces. Don't do the middle. Don't do the middle. Um, I could definitely. <laughs> Why not? It seems like it would be so. Dude, it's, it's, a, it's a whole lot of nothing with straight roads. You're going to be you're going to be pretty bored. Um, but hey, it, so it, it, I, I want to write an article. I think that this is this is the thing. I think I think curvy roads are overrated. Wow. I think that there's a case to be made for the straight road and the loneliness. Some of the best driving I've ever done is in is in Nevada, right. Highway 50, uh, or, or around like Tonopah and all these different places that are abandoned in Nevada, where you are utterly alone so alone that if you get off out of your car and you stand on the roof you see absolutely nothing right nothing and it's the vanishing point of being able to see for so far when you're on a curvy road you're in the forest you're in the mountains you get out of your car you're kind of with everything within 50 yards 100 yards is like you're kind of encapsulated in this little spot right you're in this little this little cove this little box of of beauty right you get out into some of these places where it is absolutely nothing as far as you as far as your human capability your as far as the sense of your eyes are able to see as a human being you can see it all like as far as it goes the vanishing point into the distance and you're the only one that's able to see it at that given time it's so magical and it's so special and i, I don't know if you've driven out in the i'm sure you have been out in australia where you can feel that and see that i mean maybe across australia's lake maybe a little too much of it but I'm just, I really love, 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 love that nothing. That just absolute nothing with the vanishing point of it. Yeah, look, I can somewhat sympathize for that. It's a pretty romantic view of, you know, of a, of a straight road. But I do, I don't get to drive my car a whole lot. So when I, whenever I do get to drive it, I want to have as much fun as I can possibly can having, you know, being in that car. So to be on a straight road is definitely not my idea of it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely picking up what you're saying. And I think that's, 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 you know, that's, that's a point of view that I would happily, you know, entertain, but, um, you know, the, nothing beats a, a good bit of road that, like, you know, um, and that you can, you know, just, you really, um, get drive on. Like to me, that's, that's ultimately, that's, that's, that's really what it's all about for me, but yeah, in, in, interesting point. Yeah, I think the contrast of it helps too. You got that beautiful road. Let's say you're in, like when I drive across the West, I start out here in Minneapolis, go through Nebraska, which is smells like poop and it's very flat and very hot every time I'm there. That's all it is. It's like poopy and hottie. That's all it is. And then you get to like Colorado and it starts to get beautiful. And then of course I get into the great American West, like Utah and stuff, you know, you get into Utah and it becomes, that's my favorite place to drive. And it's, very like different biomes and it's not a lot of straight roads it's more sweeping mm-hmm. and stuff like that and usually i'm on my way to california and you leave utah in the morning and then all of a sudden you just get like you just get flung out of a slingshot into the nothing and i right. think it's maybe that journey 
that makes it okay. Like it, yeah, it's the yeah. contrast of where I was to where I am now cool. and the difference of it. Yeah, you know, I guess, you know, if you're going to drive through the center of Australia, you're not really going to get that change of landscape for quite a long time. So it's a it'd be quite a different experience. Um, <laughs> but I can definitely understand. There's always Tasmania that. too, right? I, we've got, I've got like a route in Tasmania. Like I'd love to do an overcrest rally in Tasmania. Tasmania. It's like my goal. It's on my five-year plan. Like, I'd love to go there. He's nuts. It is. It, I would, I would say do that first um tasmania is big enough that you can really drive it for a few days and you could you could do the whole thing in like you know like two like two three days you could do the outskirts in two three days for sure but then there's the inside uh, tasmania is incredible yeah. east coast of tassie which i've done is that those have to be some of the best driving roads i've seen in australia no doubt it's so incredible how um, do you get there what's the what's it like for like getting a ferry to, like so there's only, I, obviously i'm not shipping a car to tasmania yeah so if like you were from to, here, I mean, like on a, like in a shipping container and putting it on a boat and sending it over, I've got to get it to Sydney first. And then you've got, to like? get, you've got to get to Melbourne. Once upon a time, you used to be able to catch a boat called the Spirit of Melbourne from Sydney. That doesn't happen anymore. Now, if you want to catch that ferry, you've got to go to Melbourne. So you would have to go to Melbourne, get your car on a ferry and then do the I think it's like four or five hours. I don't quote me on that. But it's a pretty short trip and then you're there and it's, and the last time that I was there and I did the East Coast, I was doing it in a crappy renter car and I just remember thinking, oh, what would I give to have my 911? Like, just, just the most amazing roads. Uh, so incredible. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what you would have to do if you were. That was me on the Nürburgring in a Mercedes A-Class diesel getting passed by everything going, why am I driving this? Dude, that sounds a lot better than what ever. That sounds a lot better than what we had. We had the equivalent of an Opal uh, in Australia. It's called a um, like a Holden, um, and it's just anyway. Don't want to talk about it. It's sad, but yeah, those roads are incredible. <laughs> is that bad? Jeez. No, my I mean, my, just... my uh, Australia geography is really really quite bad because obviously yeah. Sydney is very far from Tasmania and Melbourne. Melbourne no, is not right. What's it cost to get your car over there? to get from Melbourne to, uh, to Tassie. I don't know. Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a couple hundred bucks. Not that much. It really, it's not that steep. Oh, that's not bad. Uh, yeah. Some people do that trip once a week. Uh, some people work in Melbourne and live in Tassie and they'll, they'll do it once a week. Like it's really not that big a deal. You can definitely do it. Um, it's not too expensive. Um, I got a bunch of friends who have a rally and they go over there once a year and you know, they just all convoy down to uh, Melbourne and hop on the ferry and they have three, four days of just driving some of the most amazing roads in Australia. And I think back to your point, that's kind of what makes Tassie. Here's the question. Yeah, go. So I was just going to say, yeah, here's the question. If I, if I were to say, Hey, we're doing an overcrest rally in Tasmania, would enough people want to go that oh, we yeah. could do it? Oh yeah. You know, I could maybe have like maybe 15 people would ship their car there. You think you think we could do it? You think we could make it happen? You'd get enough Aussies interested to do it. You wouldn't have to ship any cars. But uh, yeah, it's it's to go to Tassie is on. There's a it's lot a of people who make it part of their regular schedule to go to Tassie and spend three four days driving. That is part of. And I think you know there is an event. I'm not sure if it was on this year, but the Targa Tasmania is a thing. 
where they block off public roads in the middle of Tassie and, and they have a, like a, like a full on stage rally. Um, you know, it, and back to your earlier point about the change um, of scenery, it tr it's really what makes Tassie so incredible to drive in because you go from mountain ranges to beaches and you know, it's, there's a lot of change in scenery. It's a very dramatic, it's probably, a lot of people say that Tasmania is a poor man's New Zealand because it's, it's kind of what it looks like. It looks a lot like New Zealand. So yeah, I would 100% vouch for you to do that. That would be incredible. I'll definitely okay, so I'm going to feel like I'm in because I'm going to call it Tassie from now on. So yeah. I, I'm making steps to knowing knowing what I'm talking about. Australia do the Overcrest be, Rally and Tassie. We, we get, we're pretty lazy. We tend to shorten everything and just add like a, a Y or IE to it. Yeah, that's just the way we operate. Well, that's exactly what you'd expect out of a prison state, which is oh. <laughs> pretty much just over here. We just assume you guys are, everybody is the descendant of like a murderer is kind of how we perceive Australia. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to get too much into that, but yeah, maybe it's we definitely it's, I would say if you were to trace the route, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of that for sure. Uh, but yeah, Tasmania is is a must and i think even if you were to come here on a holiday and you just do like a you know do like a recce on what it's like to go there you like you'll fall in love it is really incredible a recce yeah wow a recce and tazzy is that a word you guys awesome. use i mean i've i've always recce? wanted to go we had we had a guy that came on the podcast and he was a dude that like he went and he like just drove around places on a scooter Right. And he wrote a book about it. And it was it's a really cool episode. I, I, I can't remember his name because after 500 episodes, you start to your brain gets full. You don't um, and he said that there was a a market and this was pre COVID, but there was a market in Sydney or Melbourne for used cars. Right. And it was at, like at the bottom of a parking ramp hmm. and you would just walk in there and there'd be dudes sitting there being like, yeah, this is my my Holden, whatchamacallit. <laughs> I'm, I was I bought it to drive around in Australia. And now I'm getting out of here. And then, and then it's there, and you could buy it. And then you would be the purveyor of the Holden. You would buy the Holden, you'd drive it around, and then you would bring it back to this, like, super secret marketplace. I, I got to contact that guy and see if it's a super secret Aussie uh, marquee place. Would I call it a marquee place? Is that, no. like, how you would shorten that one? No. <laughs> you don't. Like, the word no. has to be, a, like, like, a certain length for you to be able to do that. Uh, but market's just market. Uh, okay. Yeah, that sounds. I haven't you heard. Know how, here's a question for you. Yeah. Thomas, as a, as a Porsche enthusiast, speaking of shortening things, yes, Porsche is two syllables. Correct. How do you feel about P car? Because P car is also two syllables, yep. and it seems like a total waste of time to shorten Porsche to P car. What do you think? How do you feel? Ooh, we we have another one here in Australia. We call them Porkers. So that's a so um, that's another one to throw. Porker. Uh, that's so that's another one to throw into the ring. Um, Ooh. How do I feel about Pika? I don't mind it. I definitely feel that's like a different name, though. That's like yeah, a nickname. It is. That's a like a nickname. That's like calling uh, calling somebody Junior or something, yeah. even though their real name is Thomas. You call him Junior. Yeah. Porsche Porker. It's almost like endearing a little bit. It's got. A, it's not just a shortened version of the word. I don't feel any way about Pika. I definitely feel like it's. It's definitely very American. I don't think I've I've heard it being said here, but I don't think it's 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 very prevalent. Um, but yeah, yeah it, 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 like, it's all right. It, it definitely doesn't rub me the wrong way. Uh, you know, I don't feel any sort of way about it. Yeah. Like Peacock works. 
Feels it feels slightly lazy. No worries, no, it's just a just a stupid thing. <laughs> it feels a little <laughs> bit lazy, slightly, <laughs> but like you know, I can't talk. I, you know, like being Thomas. Is there anything else on your mind before I before I let you go? Is there anything else you'd like to talk about with the book, with life, anything going on? No, I, look, I think um, to be able to come here and talk about this this book that's been very close to me for for now two years is means means the world. Um, I'd like to thank everyone who helped with this book. Um, you know, that's Ted, Nat. I um, also want to thank Andy Cruz from House Industries who helped to design the package uh, for this book. Um, you know, like I said earlier, there really was a dedicated team of people that, that, that came together to put this book um, out there. And uh, yeah, I'm just extremely thankful to, to have been able to come on and, and you know, uh, to talk about my experience making it and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a wild ride and I really can't wait to, to hear what people think once they have it in their hands. Cause I, I do think that it's so much more than just a cover to cover book. It really is an experience in itself. Um, and you know, this book was created by fans and followers of Porsche. So it's not something that was created as part of a marketing exercise. It was really something that, that was birthed out of, you know, you know, really wanting to, to pay, um, like tribute to what Porsche is by folks who love the brand. So yeah, I'm just, thank you. I just, that's, 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 I think that's the, that's the best way to do it. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously this isn't like, you're not expecting to sell a million copies of this book. This was really a passion project and, uh, I'm really interested to see it. Like I said, the, the Porsche archive is an absolute enigma. It is a, when you look at it, it's just, you assume like you'll never get in there. You'll never be able to see it. So I'm really excited to see what you guys did. The way yeah. that you, it sounds like you wrote the book and photographed the book sounds incredible. I love that you're serving the viewer, serving the reader, which is something I always try to do here. Uh, I'm looking forward to it very much. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to hang out with us. No, you got I it, cannot wait to see you on the 2024 Overcrest Rally. It's going to be good. In Tassie. Oh, he's got me. He's got me. In Tassie. We're doing it in Tassie. <laughs> All right, buddy. You take care of yourself. No, you too. Thank you, Chris. Speak soon, buddy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. This room is real, Thomas. And that means the treasure is real. We're in the company of some of the most brilliant minds in history because you found what they left behind for us to find and understood the meaning of it. You did it, Thomas, for all of us, your grandfather, and all of us. And I've never been so happy to be proved wrong.